Welcome to the Let's Talk About Digital Identity podcast. I'm Francesca Hobson, and I'll be guest hosting this episode of the podcast all around inclusive identity. When I say I work in identity, my friends and family usually don't know what I'm talking about. To explain, I'll often give the example of signing up to an app and logging in, which really doesn't begin to cover the myriad of use cases that identity enables, some of which we've explored on this podcast. But it's such a common experience that it's often the easiest for them to relate to. They're touching our industry several times a day, many of them without really thinking of identity as the key to so many processes. Of course, that's not the case for everyone. Some people, often the more vulnerable in society, are only too aware of how important identity is to accessing and using services. Security is clearly high priority for service providers when it comes to identity, as is regulatory compliance. But when these aspects aren't correctly balanced with user experience, or when users with varying abilities, technical proficiency, or access to resources are not fully catered for, there is a very real risk that the intended users will be excluded from or have trouble using the service bringing all kinds of implications from ethical to economic. Making identity solutions inclusive for everyone wanting or needing to use them is a topic that's coming more and more to the forefront of our industry. From that almost universal use case of logging into apps, to what happens when people are prevented from accessing essential services, to how barriers to organisation identity is impacting individuals. In this episode, we speak to three guests from the identity industry on what they're doing to help solve these issues. One of the clearest areas of digital identity where we see the impact of not doing enough to include vulnerable people is authentication, the point where a user must verify their identity in order to gain access to a service. Many services still require authentication via a password, though many others are now opening up options for authentication via biometrics, identity providers, real-time document proofing, and so on. To explore this topic further, our regular podcast host, Oscar Santalaya, spoke to Shahrazad Davidson, the CEO of Tricerian, which provides strong authentication with picture-based passwords. How the current authentication methods, especially but not exclusively username, password, are impacting inclusion? Inclusion is a very wide term, as we know, Oscar. And one of the key issues post-pandemic is an increase of use of digital across the board. That's obvious to a lot of people. But what isn't so obvious is this whole concept of digital divide and how that impacts inclusion. So if you are not sophisticated in using online services, maybe because you're too young or you're too old, that is excluding people from accessing services. In addition, it is true that there is a whole cohort of people that find the simple alphanumeric password very challenging. Maybe they have learning difficulties or maybe they don't, but they have something like dyslexia That's not a learning difficulty. That's just difficulty maybe typing in numbers and letters. But if that's the way the corporate entity forces you to authenticate, then 
there's an issue. Similarly, I think sometimes biometrics and fingerprints are things that people don't necessarily want to use as well in terms of where is my data stored, who gets access to it. So I think corporate entities need to think wider than just what looks simple might be complex for some people. And that's why I think it's important to bring in experts on user interface and actually usage by consumers or people using services online to get an idea of the wider impacts of this race to digital. There needs to be a wider review by corporates and governments on how people of all abilities manage to access digital services. And it is true that one size doesn't fit all. And corporates need to be quite flexible in the alternative ways that they offer authentication. And I think we've talked about this where if the onus is on the individual to authenticate themselves, those in the industry need to make it truly inclusive with alternative ways depending on a customer's needs. Mm -hmm, exactly. And what are these alternatives? What are the available alternatives for those survivors who have decided to be more inclusive? And you can tell us what is Triserian's role into this. Yeah, so our solution at Triserian is an image-based password where it's very simple. And we like to say you can use it whether you're from two to age 100 because it's based on images. And your brain is wired to remember a series of images or pictures much better than a long string of letters and numbers. So you have a keypad you recognize that's delivered to you at each authentication occurrence. The images jumble around on the keypad, but your password stays the same. So simple, easy, visual. And of course, we will acknowledge that not everybody can use a visual password. But I think this is where it comes back to the first point is giving individuals choices on how they authenticate and allowing them to choose something that works for them. And that's a different way of thinking for corporates, actually, because they do want to force all of their customers to use the same methodology because it's cheaper for them and easier. But I think it is really beholden on all of us who work in the industry to push hard for alternative authentication methods, because then digital truly becomes an inclusive, secure environment where people aren't nervous about going online. And that's got to be a good thing all around, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you to Scheherazade for filling us in on the impact of exclusion in the online service authentication process. So what about national level IDs, such as physical documents, which are now often used for both virtual and in-person identity verification? What happens when people are prevented from accessing essential services, such as banking, because of a lack of perceived sufficient identity documentation? One organization carrying out important research in this area is Women in Identity, a not-for-profit organization making practical steps towards an identity industry that is built for all, by all. To fill us in on its latest research on this topic, Oscar spoke to Sarah Walton, who's managing Women in Identity's innovative Code of Conduct program. 
Hi, Sara. Could you tell us what is the impact of identity exclusion? Yeah, certainly. There's a number of really quite detrimental impacts, both to end users, to organizations who are involved in the identity ecosystem. So that would include relying parties and also it would include identity providers. But in terms of the impact to end users, it can mean sometimes that they can't find work, they can't find somewhere to live because they can't prove their identity and so they can't support their request and their application for a bank account, for example, which would then enable them to find somewhere to rent. So end users end up sometimes having to compromise their integrity and to lie in order to find ways around quite a rigid system. And the system doesn't have to be that rigid. So we interviewed a number of end users in our human impact of ID exclusion report. And we found that there were similarities both in more developed economies and emerging markets. We took Ghana and the UK as representative of one of each of those types of economy. And we found that there were definitely similarities to the quite horrendous experiences that end users have and how it limits their engagement in society. But also, very importantly, this is something that makes people outsiders within society that they don't belong. And so there's an emotional aspect and impact to that for real people and their lives too. And very quickly, I'll just add that that's the human impact, the emotional impact, the impact on individual people's lives and livelihood. And children suffer because if parents can't make money, then children sometimes can't get fed. So it's really very serious. But from a global perspective, from a national perspective, from an economic and commercial perspective, the McKinsey report has recently suggested that between 3 and 13% of gross domestic product, so the income to a country, could be increased by 3 to 13%, probably 3% for more developed economies and 13% more towards that end of the spectrum for emerging economies. So in terms of income into a country, which is beneficial for everyone involved and every type of organization and individuals, if we included and were inclusive in our identity service creation, then we would all be richer, essentially. So this is very much something that is very commercially important, but it's also extremely important to people's lives and livelihoods on an individual basis. Yeah, absolutely. I see that everybody benefits with more inclusion. Absolutely, yes. So I think one of the products of the project that you just mentioned is the Women Identities Code of Conduct. Could you tell us more about this and how it aims to support identity inclusion? Absolutely. There's a number of phases to this piece of work. It's an international code of conduct for the identity industry. And I would stress that it's international And we have very much a fragmented approach at the moment in different regions, but also within those regions. Irrelevant of whether it's a government-owned or a government-assured or a private identity system. So the ID Code of Conduct work is aiming to create a set of guiding principles that will ensure that all users of identity systems have a consistent and high-quality end-user experience. Because what we found in our first phase, which is the human impact of ID exclusion that I just mentioned, is that users 
irrelevant of what type of economy they come from, have a lack of knowledge of how the process works. So if we could at least make this consistent, then people will have a certain set of expectations and then they can learn one approach and then know that approach will apply wherever, whatever product or service they're accessing. And also that there are alternative ways for those people to access those services. The work that we've done so far, it's emerged that there's five key principles that will be foundational to the creation of an ID code of conduct. So the first one, It's pretty obvious to any product designer and design team, but very important that the user is at the center of the ID ecosystem. And there's many ID ecosystems. So we always need to come back to this user-centric approach. Secondly, that social norms are changing. So we need to acknowledge that and one size doesn't fit all. And we need to move towards proportionality. So vouching, tiered KYC, EKYC and drawing on other forms of government data. So other data sets may help reduce the burden of identity for the user. And it's essential to build diversity into ID. And for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, because it has a commercial and a human impact benefit. And also that identification may be individual, but that we live in networks of people that already know us. So We need to account better for delegated authorities and intermediaries so we can leverage those networks effectively. So what we'll be aiming to do is take these key principles and then develop probably about five to 10 principles that will be useful for ID creation teams, ID development teams. We also have another piece of work called the implementation framework, and that will be a way of helping a kind of how-to guide to look at how these code of conduct principles can be applied in practice in a practical setting by an ID team. And we will create a fictional ID product or service to show at each phase of the design and development process in an agile process of development, how these principles would be applied coherently and in a practical way within the ID development team. And our sponsors, who I'll just mention, and with a big thank you, GBG Group, MasterCard, RBC, and Omidia Network, our sponsors for the human impact work, some of whom will be coming with us on the journey and new sponsors are joining all the time. We will also be using some of our sponsors' products and services to demonstrate how we've they applied in practice this ID code of conduct set of principles in order to create an easy-to-use, accessible ID service as an end product for the user. And I would just also like to say, Oscar, if I can, that we are looking for new sponsors as well, more sponsors. They're coming on board all the time, but please do contact us because we are in the process of raising the funds for those last two elements that I mentioned, the ID code of conduct principles and the implementation framework. And we'd very much like some new sponsors to come and join us, not just in terms of funding, but also with their knowledge from their ID teams. Because the more widely we go with this, the more diversity we have in our development process for the ID code of conduct, the more relevant it's going to be and useful it's going to be for organisations and standards bodies and government entities around the world all of whom are extremely interested and see this as a very useful, potentially alternative solution, if we can get adoption, to the creation 
of legislation because legislation is expensive and some organisations have been very keen to look at this piece of work in more of a standards type frame as a potential alternative in some countries to legislation potentially. So it's being taken very seriously by lots of different types of organisations, but we are looking for more sponsorship. Please do get in contact. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Walton, for sharing your insights. You're very welcome. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Great insights there from Sarah on the impact of identity exclusion and how service providers can mitigate against these critical issues. The issue of individuals being excluded from identity systems is key to the future of many industries, such as financial services. But what about organisations? Organisation identity is a lesser focused on aspect of identity inclusion. Yet how organisations identify other organisations, for example, in transactions between financial institutions and maintaining trade relations, is also a critical factor in whether access or a specific process is authorised, thereby impacting the individuals that rely on a successful B2B identity verification. To investigate this area, I spoke to Amit Sharma, founder and CEO of Finclusive, a hybrid fintech and regtech company dedicated to financial inclusion. Thanks, Amit, for joining us for the second time on the Let's Talk About Digital Identity podcast. Let's dive right in. How can inadequate organization identity systems exclude organizations and individuals unintentionally? Well, in the financial services domain, there are obligations by financial services providers to do the requisite know your customer or know your business due diligence. And so when an organization is run through that due diligence, by rule, one has to not only test the validity and verify the authenticity of the organization, but they also have to cover what's called beneficial ownerships coverage. So individuals that may have an equity or ownership stake or other what we call control persons that control, say, fiduciary or economic activities of that organization. And if there are not adequate identity systems to verify and validate either the organization or their beneficial owners, they get rejected by financial services organizations. And this can happen in a number of ways. Corporate enterprises, they may be large and very easy from a legitimacy perspective, but because of how large they can be and their ownership structures, the complexity of their org structures can vary globally, it's hard to actually do the beneficial ownership and control person verification because those org structures are pretty complex. But also small businesses. Small businesses are very challenged because often there's very little information on the backgrounds of those small businesses that are often startups, etc. And then they're not available in mainstream databases and corporate registries. And so ensuring that the organization's identity can be verified and validated can be very difficult if they're a small startup with a registration in a local town, but don't have a state, province, municipality, or federal registration. And then nonprofits are a great example too, critical for global humanitarian and development needs. But many are seen by financial services operators as operating without adequate documentation. And these all come back to organizational identity systems failing many of these organizations' ability to access basic financial services. So it's quite a complex challenge. It's very solvable. But these are some of the issues that we see. This is really a lesser talked about aspect of identity and how it impacts inclusion. 
And as an industry, we do need to be more proactive on solving the kinds of things that you've spoken about. So how can we do that? How is Finclusive supporting organization identity in order to enable better financial inclusion? Well, we have the tools now to be able to assign digital credentials or verifiable credentials for individuals and entities and entities of all types from small businesses and micro businesses to nonprofits to global corporates and any other kind of legal entity out there. And so what we do at Finclusive in partnership with organizations like the Global Legal Entity Identifier Foundation is to be able to run the associated compliance checks, the background due diligence of the validity of the organization itself and the beneficial owners associated with it. And with those full compliance checks, be able to issue a credential that other business entities, other financial services organizations can be sure that the organization is not only a legitimate registered organization with a legitimate set of activities, but also the individuals associated with that organization have been equally checked. And by providing that, you create a veil of legitimacy associated with that organization's and its activities. So its business counterparts, its financial services providers can all understand and verify and validate in an efficient and cheap way the validity of that organization. And that's hugely important. Now, from a macroeconomic perspective, it's important to note that identity challenges are often seen as just at the individual level. But these at the institutional or entity level are equally important. And they're important, I'll say, by many standards, but one really stands out, that the global job creation space is small businesses. So we have to be able to ensure the validity of small businesses worldwide so that they can access capital to start and grow their businesses, so they can interact with other organizations financially and economically. So this is a huge challenge. And when 90 plus percent of job creation and business growth is small businesses, this makes this very important. Thanks to Amit for that summary of the many issues and implications around organization identity and financial inclusion. So there we have it. Three perspectives on the state of identity inclusion as it is today and how they're personally taking strides towards making identity solutions more inclusive. Thank you so much to Shahrazad Davidson, Sarah Walton, and Amit Sharma for sharing your expertise with us. To find out more about this episode's guests and link to their work, take a look at the show notes. This topic isn't going away anytime soon. These challenges and solutions that are facing the identity industry aren't simple. The more we raise awareness of these issues, the more initiatives and innovation we work towards and share as a community, the faster we can build more inclusive identity systems that work for everyone. We hope to provide one of those awareness platforms on the Let's Talk About Digital Identity podcast, so make sure you subscribe. Until next time.